Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is now retired after a 40-year career in education. She began as a teacher and ended her career as a district administrator, a reader, a writer, and a perennial, a person with no age mindset. She considers family and friends to be the most important parts of her life, followed by traveling and bird watching. Freedom Lessons is her first published novel, recognized as a Canadian Book Club Awards finalist for fiction, a Sarton Award, a Pulpwood Queens Book Club pick, and numerous others. She presents in person and virtually to readers and educators at conferences, book clubs, and in libraries on using historical fiction to teach social justice. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Eileen Harrison Sanchez. Thank you, Julia. That was very nice. I know you read just what things that are on my website and such, but I don't usually hear them. So thank you. It was nice to hear. You're uh, very accomplished, and I'm happy to have you here today. Oh, well. Good to be here, really. I appreciate all you do for all of these, all authors over 50. And there's quite a group of us, right? There truly is. And our opening question on authors over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? Well, as you said, I was working uh, in my career uh, as a teacher, um, And I loved it. Uh, You know, when I first was, when I was younger, I I did write, but I just wrote poetry. Third grade, I had a a poem published in the local newspaper. So I I used to dabble. When I was in high school, uh, I wrote something that uh, my English teacher, Mr. San Giacomo, uh, if he's listening still, encouraged me to consider writing as a career. And my parents didn't think that was such a good idea. You know, I have the generation where women were not encouraged to to really think out of the box, actually. Not that others didn't, but teacher, secretary, or nurse. So I always wanted to be a teacher. So it wasn't a hard choice for me. I loved it. Um, and when, you know, my, my mother said that, you know, you really won't make any money writing. What are you going to do? 
Now, in today's world, I think I, I give my granddaughter a little different advice. There's so many options. She's very interested in literature and writing and reading. And there's just lots of things to do besides trying to earn money by writing novels. So in a way, my mother was right about that. But when I retired, she said she made a mistake. She hadn't given me very good advice. And she said, it's time for you to write that book you want. And so I when I started off uh, writing by a challenge uh, from a friend who, in my second year of teaching, I taught in Louisiana, in the Deep South, during a very tumultuous time, 1969, civil rights issues, uh, the Vietnam War protests. My husband was in the army. We lived in Louisiana. I taught in a segregated black school, uh, which was a culture shock for me uh, coming from New Jersey. Uh, it wasn't, it just wasn't the way things, it was different, just really a culture change for me. So uh when I, I just never, when I returned to New Jersey, it was, people didn't really understand the experience that I had. And I didn't talk about it very much, but I did talk about it on a visit to uh, New Orleans at a conference. And that was when this friend challenged me to, you need to tell about that year. And so I started writing it as a memoir, just really for my daughters and my granddaughters. I had no intention of writing a book. <laughs> um, and so I I did as, as I worked at it, uh, joined a writing group. And, you know, it just evolved into my first novel. So that's what I, it just took me a long time. It also takes uh, a long time to really, first, of course, you get the draft, you have it. Um, and then what do you do? How do you really get it published? So that was the challenge. But I would, I know some of the thoughts that as I looked over your suggested questions, um, you know, what should other authors, what should you do? I was lucky to have be part of a writing group that is uh, the Writer Circle in New Jersey. You, people can join it now since uh, the internet and Zoom has allowed us to do virtual programming. Um, some of the classes are offered there, but that's how I got started. And out of my first writing group, which was, let me think, 12 years ago when I when I started that, Four of us are published, and all different ways. Uh, I'm hybrid published. Another is traditionally published, uh, a self-published. It just, you know, the varied uh, options that are there for authors today. But the fun part, when we finished, like we were ready to really submit, and we went gradually through this process with the woman that leads the program. She took us on a book, uh, a class trip. We went to the local Barnes and Noble. And she said, go down and find the shelf that your book will be on. So she kind of set up this goal for us, which seemed daunting. When you go into a bookstore or a library, 
I mean, I just, I'm in heaven when I get into either place. But it's also like, well, all these people publish books, why not me? So it gave us this more confident pursuit. But then finding an agent, finding a publisher, it's a challenge. Um, she also recommended that we try traditional route, go to conferences. Uh, I think anyone that's listening that's trying to find a way to um, get a book, pu book published, find your tribe is, is what some of these workshops will tell you. Find people that are like you. And there are so, as we said, there are so many women and men over 50. They're in second careers. They've been established in other walks of life. And they're also very ready to hand, you know, offer you some help. And you just, but you have to ask for it sometimes. They're not going to always come to you. But in my experience, I've found asking for help uh, really help guided me or it gave me connections. You know, each step took me along a different path. Um, so I also uh, lived in the deep South for most of my life. And so I know about all the challenges and, and how different it is. Sometimes I say you need a passport to, to travel there, but um, I know that was your inspiration, your year in Louisiana, but how did you determine the plot of the book? Well, the plot really followed that one year. I decided that it was just going to be about that one school year. Um, the plot had to follow when I, the reason I changed from memoir to historical fiction can you believe that? Like it qualifies for historical fiction just by 50 years there. Um, but I needed, when I researched, I realized that I knew my story, but I didn't know the people in the town. And that was part of the issue just being there, you know, the all towns, but especially small towns in in any part of the country, but in the part of this part of the South, um, you really have deep roots, generations. People live in the same houses, and you really do establish um, a community of people looking out for each other. And so, as I did my research, I realized how important that was to the black families. Uh, in the community that I lived in. And when, you know, part of the plot of the book is that in 1969, there was a little known civil rights law, a Supreme Court decision based on the civil rights law. It's called Alexander v. Holmes, and it was decided on October 29th, 1969. And that law that year in some parts of the South is known as the crossover because at that point, any districts that had not integrated their schools needed to do that by the end of 1969. And so the district that I worked in decided the way they would do that instead of following freedom of choice laws, which was an agreed upon 
option, but no longer legal, um, they just decided to overnight close the schools. So I knew how that affected my experience, but how do you really look at families of children and high school students and how did it affect all those children and the teachers, the black teachers? So I did a lot of research. I did, I found dissertations that helped me to understand that year. I interviewed um, people. I went back to the town. I I was able to meet uh, the principal of the school that they did reopen the school. Uh, it's now serves as a middle school for that community. Uh, and I asked her, I wanted to get in touch with my second graders because uh, I could never find them again. Uh, I didn't look for a long time, but when I did start to look, I, I had no way to contact them. And so I thought, well, a class list. There were no records available for that year. Um, she helped me find, she said that she only knew about her brother who had been a senior that year. And when they closed the schools at the end of the year, then they were not allowed to graduate. And that gave me one character. That gave me Frank. Frank tells the story of the high school students. And so that got me going. I knew I wanted to tell from a point of view of a student, but a, I taught second grade and second graders wouldn't be the right voice. Um, Evelyn is the character that tells the story from the black teacher's point of view. And in my lifetime, my experience, my 40-year career, as you mentioned, I had a, a lot of uh, teachers that were very special friends, but particularly a, a woman named Evelyn. So I named the character after her. In, 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 and her history, her family history, and that was supported by research as well, uh, she was a third generation teacher, an African-American woman from Virginia. Um, and I just understood the middle-class culture of the Deep South, of the families that lived there. And so I, Evelyn helped to tell that story. And it just, but it ends at the end of that school year. Um, and you find out what happened to Evelyn a little bit at the end. Frank's story is kind of left open-ended uh, deliberately. That was the time of, um, of Vietnam and being drafted. And this town was next to an army base, which provided a lot of employment as well. So it, um, it, my purpose, I think, in my once I really finally uh, decided on the plot and weaving those characters together was to create conversation, to create uh, discussion about those years. It was in 2019 that this book was published, which was before a lot of the issues of 2020 where uh, Black Lives Matter um issues re reappeared, not that they were gone, but they came into uh, 
bigger view and bigger conversations and unfortunate situations that really mirrored the time. So it was a timely um, publication in a way to people were interested, engaged in conversation, and not just those of us that lived in those years, but I, my one of my proudest uh, events that has just happened is that I now was able to speak to students, teachers, you know, pre-service teachers. They're in their fifth year. They're doing finishing their master's programs. And we get to talk about social justice and compare the past and the present and what has changed. And I've said to them that the biggest change for teachers dealing with the situations that they do now with school issues with social justice is that you can talk about it. When I was experiencing this, there was no conversation. And that so that's why my experience and my feelings really got buried for a long time. Writing the book was a bit of a catharsis um, and really uh, studying the other side of things as from my past, you know, in looking back and understanding from a, my own point of view after having my experience in schools. It just... Um, it's been a great, a great opportunity. Well, you have written about a time that is still very poignant to me because I graduated in 1972 and we did not integrate the schools in my area of Mississippi until 1970. So we had two years of integration and we were very quiet and Nobody got to know each other very well in those two years, and we just had our 50th class reunion, and we came back together, black and white children, you know, still in our minds from those years, and we were able to have those discussions that you're talking about and talk about how we felt and what was going on around us and things that we didn't understand at the time that we now, in our late adulthood can understand and it was just a marvelous visit well that's that's really great um at the time of my publication in 2019 so the winter of 2020 before the pandemic uh stopped us all visiting each other i was able to go to um, shreveport louisiana which was not the town and my hours and miles away from where i uh where I worked, but that was the year of those high school students. The 2019 was their 2020 was their 50th re high school reunion. And so I did a public event where the, the college that had invited me to come and speak to the public and to some classes as well at the college uh, about what is called the crossover in Louisiana, because these students are 18 and 19 years old in the college. They didn't know the history. That was all um, something you read about, but the my book took them into the personal lives of some people during that time. Uh, and then the, the adults that came to the event 
we're we're kind of at first weren't sure that I should be telling the story, some of them, uh, because my, two of my characters are black voices. And my credibility to tell the story was because it was also an experience of mine. And when people got to hear that part, um, it it really opened up some some good conversations and supportive uh, supportive events. So it that's all I, I I always feel like if you just can speak to one person at a time, one person changes their give them something different to think about. Um, then you know that's that's a better. Uh, than our laws that we do need laws to protect our civil rights, but laws don't change what people think. They don't change people's opinions. Other people can change people's opinions. And if you do it respectfully and gently and open-mindedly, um, I've found that you can get a little further. And as we write, when you're serious about telling uh, a story like this, like Freedom Lessons is, um, you the research that supported my writing opened my eyes, helped me to write in that voice. Uh, I used men in my life to help tell the story of Frank. And you know, it's after you're done writing the book and you get actually get a publisher, then you have to look at a publicity plan or marketing. And my publicist asked me to come up with three to five things that would be the message in my book. And like, that was very hard to whittle down. But that's when I came up with... <laughs> The book title was always Freedom Lessons. And then I thought, well, what were the lessons, Eileen? And one important lesson was about family and community and how if we look to what is the same about us, we can really come to some common understandings. And that's where Frank's family, Evelyn's family, and Colleen's family, the Similarities of family support was what I tried. I had con tried to convey throughout the book that they all came from families that expected certain things of them, certain behaviors, and that was what they had in common. So, well, that was my next question: to know what you're doing to promote the book. Well, it's give it is have a life of its own right now i mean it's three years more than three years uh, that it's been published and it's still um receiving interest uh at a diff from a different group so it's getting i always hoped that it would get into educational circles and it's been on book lists for recommended reading for that time for uh historical fiction um and now that I'm getting to talk to community people here in, in, in my local 
general area. Uh, Rutgers University serves uh, the community in various ways and uh, with uh, programs and uh, committees like diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. You know, people, I'm they're reaching out to me as a speaker or as uh, um, or to use my book as examples. And so it's, I'm letting it just do its own thing. It's taking me on such a journey that um, I, I'm following the book, I think. Um, you know, I, we, I have, it's an audio book. It's a, it's an ebook. It's in print. It's, I would like to think it's an evergreen book. It can be used beyond its time and still generate conversations. And so that's, that's how I'm just having an opportunity like this to talk with you. Hopefully some other people will find out about it and decide that they'd like to read it. Well, that's a perfect segue into the passages that you've brought to share today from the book. So why don't you read so that we can hear your tone and voice? Okay. I'm going to explain the the beginning. This comes from the beginning of the novel and the background. It also represents how I used research in uh in the memories to support the memories of that year. Um, one of the dissertations I found is called even the books were separate. And that title just jumped out at me. Uh, and the last sentence that the, what I'm going to read to you is a direct quote from the dissertation. Uh, the dissertation included interviews of teachers and administrators that went through that year. Uh, from the South. So um, Colleen was hired to teach in the segregated black school. And as a new teacher, Evelyn was assigned to mentor her. So Colleen uh, had taught in New Jersey before, and she was used to a better stocked uh, classroom, especially one that had teacher guides to help her along. She was a new teacher, but um, teacher guides are always helpful. So Colleen and Evelyn are meeting after school in this passage. So Colleen picked up one of the readers and opened it to the page with Dick and Jane hurrying to help their mother take the clothes off the line because it had started to rain. Colleen had taught from the 1965 edition in her last school. In it, a Negro family with twin sisters, Penny and Pam, and their brother Mike, were friends of Dick, Jane, and Sally. Evelyn, Colleen said, this is a really old book from 1956. Why don't we have the new edition? Evelyn's rare smile disappeared. We take what we get, and this is what we get. Did you look at the inside page? All the books came from the white school. When they got new books, we got new ones too. Colleen felt her eyes widen. Evelyn shook her head. Don't look so shocked. Some folks think we should be grateful that we have a Negro school at all, separate but equal. A friend of mine had to set up a new classroom in a white school this year, and she found out that they store the books 
in different stockrooms, colored and white. If they can't even mix the books, how do they think they can mix the students and the teachers? So that just put chills just reading to you yeah. when I read that in the dissertation. Um, it's very powerful. Yeah, thank you. Do you have any other books in you? Well, I have an idea. I seem to write about family and history and family and then create it into fiction. So uh, my husband is uh, Cuban. Uh, he came here when he was 13. And his story is quite compelling. So uh, I'm trying to do that. But at the moment, I'm having trouble with plot. So I have to think it through. Um, it's I got so tied up in the fun that he, the boys in the book, have in when they were children in Cuba and it's just but they were also experiencing and witnessing uh battles in the hills so there's it's kind of it's it's in process and we'll see how far I get but it's coming along what does writing success look like to you personally Oh, everything I'm sitting where I'm sitting, you can't see, but I have posters and awards that I've displayed, you know, as a teacher, you're used to bulletin boards and you put all these things up and it's just, it makes me feel just like, well, this made a difference to some people. I think that one of the pictures that I'm looking at is a cover it's the same my grandson drew the picture of the cover of my book and it's just a child's drawing but he came to my opening uh event and he, he in the, out in the public he raised his hand and he asked well how do you write a book how do you get it published and so i think being an example for my grandchildren that you can do this and they're so proud of me they go into Barnes and Noble and they ask for my book and they have the person take them to the shelf and if it's not there the the clerk will say well we can order it for you and they they say well we'll be back <laughs> because they they already have their copies but I think that's my my success that that's the that's the best the best but meeting all the reward of meeting someone like you. So many authors are just so open. I just feel so comfortable. I have this wonderful community of writers from all the different stages of writing this book. Um, it's just such a joy. It really is. And that's one of my favorite parts of writing this book is hearing from people all over the country who uh, my first book was about adoption because I'm an adopted child from a maternity home in New Orleans. And I love hearing from the birth families, from the adoptive families, from other adoptees. And, and it does really 
mean something that our books have reached them. They're not friends. They're not family. They're strangers who have been touched by what we have written on the page. And I, I think that's so important and yeah. especially to leave a legacy for our children and grandchildren. Yes. Well, Eileen, as always, our last interview question is, our writers over 50 are quite unique. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? I think I probably have said it, but it won't hurt to repeat. Find a writer's group. Just start. If you're just starting, go to um, conferences. You have, you, you meet other people. You go to workshops. You find you just find your tribe. And, you know, I've, I have more than one tribe. I was a pulpwood queen that I, I have my writer's group from the beginning. And I, all those women are still friends. So uh, I do a Facebook group. We have, you know, we just, we try to support each other. I think that was my greatest, um, pleasure a bit of a surprise at how supportive even established authors are i reached out to amy hill harth who um is a and a well-established author and she reviewed she edited my final edit on my book or it was and that was what really got me to the next step um she was very gracious to help so you, you don't know who you can reach out to strangers uh, if they have time and you can they can help you. They will. I agree. And I, I think you're doing important work. I think whether you're writing about freedom from uh, integration here in this country or or immigrants coming to this country from Cuba, I think you're your words are going to mean so much to so many. And so we just appreciate you and your, your many years in education. You're still educating us all today. So thank you so much for being with us. And we can now say that you're counted among our authors over 50. Thank you, Julia. I really appreciate this conversation. It's been great meeting with you in person and now virtually. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.